Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Normally I prefer my job of just standing at the back, holding the door open and counting heads. Uh, but uh, I was hoping when Reed was coming down here, he was just going to take my place and preach for me. But he just was going to turn on the recorder, which is even better. Let's record what Keevan has to say. Um, my name is Keevan. I am on staff. I'm more than just a doorman that stands back there, although that's really all I want to be. Um, my wife, Stephanie, and I have been here since 2002. 2002, long time ago. Um, and uh, this is our family. Go to that next uh, first slide there. Um, my daughter Emma is here, my favorite, my favorite child. I can say that because my son is not here. So that's what parents do. We just tell each of you that you're the favorite when the others are not around. But it's my daughter Emma. And my son is Ethan. And this is his wife Hayden. And they are expecting their first child in January. So that means Steph and I are going to be grandparents. Um, I've been, the whole time I've been at CCF, I, everybody just thinks, you know, I'm the old guy. And uh, sometimes they joke and, you know, call me grandpa. Well, joke's on you. I am going to be a grandpa. So um, it's kind of hard to believe, uh, but it's going to be fun. We're looking forward to that. So that's our family. Uh, the next picture is... My IFG family. IFG stands for International Focus Group. So Stephanie and I work with the international students. And these are our student interns who are so valuable to us, so important to us. We love them. Uh, they do so much to help us serve the international students on this campus and uh, absolutely love our group. So if you're considering leadership next month, I think next month, Reed, right, we'll probably start sending out applications for CCF. I have G's place to go. You can get fed a meal probably once a week, free food. Um, we have lots of fun. Last week, while you guys were on break, we took a bunch of students. We had 14 of us all together out in the country near Unionville, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, this place called Rest in Him. You see all the creative little in him. Get it? Um, and it's a cool little place. We had a lot of fun, jumped in a pond. Um, fed catfish, um, sat around, told spooky stories around campfire. We have cultural night where, where they can tell us about their culture. It's awesome. You, you should really uh, consider being part of IFG, joining our group. It's a lot of fun. Um, but today, this morning, we are talking about uh, the prophets this semester. Primarily, we are looking at Isaiah and the minor prophets, which kind of sounds like Brooke and the whomever sounds like a band name, Isaiah and the Minor Prophets. So you may, maybe it'd be Brooke and the Minor Players or something. <laughs> but like Reed told you, major doesn't mean better than minor. It is just a classification of the size of book. For example, this is the book of Isaiah, major prophet, pretty, pretty big. This is Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Four minor prophets in this tiny little book. Um, I, if I was called to be a prophet, I think I would prefer to be a minor prophet because uh, I like my messages short and sweet. Um, I would not write as much as Isaiah writes. Um, and Nahum's message this morning that we're going to look at 
is, is short. It's only three chapters, and it's sort of sweet. Um, it's it's, it's uh, three chapters long, and we're only going to look at chapter one uh, this morning. Um, how many of you like to watch movies where there's usually one person that is fighting off all the bad guys? Okay. Now, the, now I love these kind of movies. Okay. I'm going to show you a clip real quick of some uh, characters. Uh, go, yeah, go to the next one here. Okay. So this is going to age me a little bit. Some of these are older. Um, who thinks they can name the character name of most, if not all, the people in these movies? Does anybody think they can do it? I know you can, Stephanie. Paul, you want to try it? No? Who, who's, you don't, I'll help you if you don't get it. You have to know the character's name, not their real name, but the character name. Anybody want to try? Nate, you want to try it? Just, okay, well, just give me what, okay. Who's the first one? Jason Bourne, yes, definitely. Who's, who's Jason fighting? Our government. That's right, the evil government. Number two? James Bond. Number three? Indy or Indiana Jones. That's right. Number four, this gets a little older. Dirty Harry. Stephanie, can you name his full name? Harold Francis Callahan. This is interesting. Harold Francis Callahan, Dirty Harry, his adversary, he's fighting the sheriff of the town called Hope, which, which is perfect for my talk today. Um, how about number five? John McClane, Die Hard, yes. Number six? Yes, we all know Liam Neeson, but what is the boring name he has? We know it's from the movie Taken. What is his name in Taken? It's so generic. It's Brian Mills, which does not raise any kind of fear at all, unless you've watched Taken and he's had his daughter Taken, then beware of Brian Mills. Uh, number seven? John Rambo, thank you. Number eight, Ripley. Does anybody know? Oh, you said it. Ellen. Ellen Louise Ripley. That's right. They called her Ripley. What does she fight? Aliens. Aliens. Yeah, one nasty alien. And, of course, I had to put on this guy. It's Chuck Norris. It's Walker. What's Walker's first name? We had Texas Rangers, his last his <laughs> title, Cordell Walker. I mean, and he just fights whoever is just evil and bad, right? He just, uh, there's nothing better than a roundhouse kick to somebody's face, right? Especially when they're a bad guy. And I love, I love watching all of these movies, and I've watched these movies over and over and over again. <clears throat> but my all-time favorite, and I've told you this before, uh, I, don't, I don't see Noah, because Noah finally watched it. Um, I told you this before, but it is, it's more of a slow burn. It's a movie called Shawshank Redemption. How many of you have seen Shawshank Redemption? Ooh, good, good. If you have not seen it, you should just come to my house and we will watch it together. I will watch it again. Andy Dufresne is an innocent man, takes on the, the prison, corrupt prison system, particularly the evil warden, Samuel Norton, who is a Bible-thumping, quote, Christian, but is very corrupt. Um, he's always quoting scripture, and I think I love this one the most because Andy Frayne, he never, he never fights anybody. He never beats anybody up. In fact, actually, he gets beat up quite a bit, but he uses his mind. 
He is so smart. And he outsmarts the corrupt evil warden, Samuel Norton. Why do we love these movies? Why do we love these types of movies? I think because in most of us, if not all of us, we want to see justice served, right? We do not want to see evil prevail. We don't want to see evil win. We want to see justice win. We want good to prevail. Uh, the tagline in the Shawshank Redemption is, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. And you might wonder, what does this have to do with the prophet Nahum? Well, I think that same tagline could fit with the prophet and the message of Nahum, and that is, is mostly about God's justice. God's justice is basically what the book of Nahum is all about, <clears throat> and the fear is holding the people of Israel prisoner. Uh, they are very afraid, but hope was coming in the message in the prophet Nahum. It is a message of hope and comfort for those who trust and wait on the Lord. Sorry, Reed, but I gave my sermon one title and one title only. It's only three words, and that is the Lord is. Because over and over in Nahum, you'll see the line, the Lord is. Uh, I love this picture that uh, Wikipedia has about the prophet Nahum. This was actually, it's, it's a painting uh, that was done in 1888 by a guy named James Tissett. And uh, Nahum's name actually means comfort. And so it kind of makes me laugh a little bit that this was this guy's, you know, depiction of, of Nahum. That looks so comforting, doesn't he? Like, so happy. And actually, I love this picture, too, because the more I look at it, the more I think of Nate Comart. Because <clears throat> this guy's tall and lean, just like Nate is tall and lean. And so I just imagine, imagine if, if Comar, I don't know if Comar, can you grow that a beard like this, do you think? Not yet? <laughs> okay, well, imagine if Komar is at CCF for the next 40 years. This is what we're going to get. No food or drink in Valhalla 1000 or bad things will happen to you. Um, I mean, that is, a, that is a great picture. I think that should just be part of our, part of our no food or drink. Um, but as I studied about the book of Nahum, if you're ever wondering about what a book of the Bible is all about, um, a good resource is called The Bible Project. A lot of you probably have heard about that. Bibleproject.com is where you can go to. And they just have videos, and they cover a lot of different topics, but they also cover a lot of different books of the Bible. And, and so you can go to there, and they're usually short little videos. And the thing I love about them is that they, they, they use cool drawings. Like they, they actually, and I love pictures, uh, with, or books with pictures mostly. And, and so uh, it's one of my favorite things. And so instead of showing you the five-minute video, which is really good, I want to show you the, the, one of the main drawings. Uh, actually, the staff got me a whole book. They have a drawing for every book of the Bible, and they compiled it in a large book, and the staff bought that for me. It's pretty cool. Uh, and so this is the book <coughs> of Nahum that they, that they drew, and this is kind of what the uh, a short assessment, a snapshot of what they said. It says, Nahum is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of the nation of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. Assyria was one of the world's first great empires, and when Nahum brought his message to God's people, uh, it had already destroyed most of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was beginning to put the squeeze on the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, the Assyrians were very evil people. Um, they were known for their brutal treatment of their enemies. The history records that it was common for them to lop off the heads of the leaders of their enemies and pile their heads at the town gates. 
They would fillet men alive. They would impale soldiers on spears. Uh, they would dash infants against rocks, which I can't even hardly say um, because it just seems so evil. Um, they would take whole populations of people into slavery, into exile. And this was a wicked and evil people. And so, obviously, they were greatly feared by God's people, the, the Israelites, and uh, because they were just, like, getting ready to be overtaken. And so Nahum, his message portrays Nineveh's fall. He is telling them Nineveh is not going to last. Assyria is not going to last and, and, and so it is an example of how God won't allow evil empires to endure uh, forever. Um, I told you Nahum's name means comfort or consolation. And, and so his message to God's people would have brought hope and comfort to them uh, in the face of, of a terrible evil empire. I like what Eugene Peterson says in his introduction to the book of Nahum. He says this, he says, the stage of history is, <clears throat> excuse me, is large. Larger-than-life figures appear on this stage from time to time, swaggering about, brandishing weapons and money, terrorizing and bullying. These figures are not, as they suppose themselves to be, at the center of the stage, not, in fact, anywhere near the center. But they make a lot of noise, and they're able to call attention to themselves. The danger is that the noise of these pretenders to power will distract us from what is going on quietly, at the center of the stage in the person and action of God. If we're conditioned to respond to noise and size, we will miss God's word and action. And I think that's just as true for us today as it was in Nahum's day. You don't have to uh, go look real far to see the injustice that happens in our world. Um, we see it every day. It can be very <clears throat> loud. It could be very distracting. And we can think that they are at the center of the stage because they're making the most noise. Uh, but in all that noise, we can, if we, we can easily miss out on how God is still working. <clears throat> or sometimes we can take our eyes off God and, and not be able to see him work in our lives because we're so focused on, on the things that seem to be bigger and louder than he is. And, and so we miss out on seeing how God is still at work in our lives. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. Um, Derek can have Annie Dillard and Reed could have Freddie B. Um, I'll take A.W. Tozer any day. Uh, but one of my favorite quotes from Tozer is in his book called Knowledge of the Holy. <clears throat> and he says, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I like that because what and how we think about God impacts our life in, in such a profound way. And, and that's why God's word is so important. And that's why it's so important for us uh, to, to live our lives and try to understand uh, who God is and, and what he means to us and to follow, uh, to follow him. And I think Nahum gives us some pretty clear description of who the Lord is. And that's where I want to keep our focus this morning. Uh, and so as I read the first chapter, I want you to listen to the description of who the Lord is in, in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1. <clears throat> an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Did you catch the descriptions of God, of who the Lord is in those verses? Maybe not really the way we always like to think about God. Uh, here in Nahum, we see the Lord described in some different ways than what we normally maybe hear. The first way we see is it says in verse 2, the Lord is, is jealous. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Does it seem strange to think of God as being jealous? When we think of jealousy, it usually has negative connotation with it. But if you look at the first two commandments in Exodus chapter 20, uh, it tells us that God, that God is a jealous God. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34 tells us that one of God's names is literally jealous. <laughs> if God was to walk in with a name tag on, he might say, hello, my name is jealous. And that would seem weird to us. But one of God's names is jealous. It's easy to think of jealousy in a negative sense. Um, and oftentimes I think we associate jealousy with sin. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 too, that it's possible for us to have a divine or godly jealousy. There is a proper form of jealousy. And God is jealous when his people are suffering uh, in the face of injustice. God is jealous when his people push him out and put some other false god in his place. But it's important for us to understand that God's jealousy is not motivated by selfishness. It is motivated by his commitment to righteousness 
and his love for his people. It would have been a comfort for God's people to hear that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, especially in the, in the face of the suffering that they were going through. That would have been a comfortable thought, knowing that God was aware of the injustice that they were going through and that he was going to make things right. Not only should it have been a comfort to God's people, but it also should have been a reminder for God's people, a reminder of how God feels about sin, a reminder of how God feels about unfaithfulness, a reminder of how God feels when we place ourselves at the center stage of life and push him out. So first we see God, the Lord is jealous. Another characteristic we see about God in Nahum is that the Lord is angry. Verse six, he says, who can endure the heat of his anger? It says the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. I mean, it's quite a picture of who God is. And when I read how God's way is in the whirlwind and the storm, it reminds me of this picture. Uh, so this truck here represents Nineveh or the Assyrian Empire, right? And by itself, it looks fine. Uh, but if you look at the rest of the picture, you suddenly realize that this truck is running for its life. Uh, this is the Lord's anger. This is, so this is how I kind of how I picture uh, the, the whole situation here with the Syrian army, Nineveh, and the Lord's anger coming after him. This is actual actual picture of a, a truck trying to outrun a volcano in the Philippines in 1991. Um, I assume they made it. I, I, don't, I don't even know who took the picture even. But, um, but you would be safer trying to outrun a volcano than trying to outrun a god. In fact, in chapters 2 and in chapter 3 of Nahum, God says to Nineveh this. He says, Behold, I am against you. That word behold men, means be sure to see. Don't miss this. It means, literally means, be sure to see. Behold, I am against you. And he says it two different times in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. And I think Nahum is an awesome example of how you do not want to find yourself in the face of God's wrath. And I wonder when God's people, when the Israelites heard this message from Nahum, if they didn't feel a little bit relieved that God's anger wasn't directed at them. Right? I mean... He's, he's, he's coming to judge the Assyrians. Uh, and so I wonder if they weren't like, whew, glad he's not talking about us. Because uh, usually when the prophets came, they most often were talking about the nation of Israel. The prophecy, the message was against them because they had turned against God. And so it makes me, it reminds me when I was a kid and my, my, my dad was upset or mad and I'd be like, trying to think, did I do something wrong? Did I say something? You know, I was like, is he mad at me? And you're just feeling kind of nervous. And then when he finds out that he's mad at your older brother, you're like, so glad. Yeah, be mad at him, you know? And, and so it's, it's like a relief. And so I wonder if the people of Israel were like that, that when Nahum comes and he has this message for them and he's talking about the Lord's anger, that they aren't kind of like relieved that the anger isn't directed at them. You know, why is God so angry? Well, first, he's jealous for his people. They're suffering. And secondly, uh, we're going to hear, we haven't gone through Jonah just yet, but we're going to go through Jonah here in a couple weeks. But Wednesday, oh man, Jonah's coming up. We, we did him backwards. Because uh, Jonah actually happens 100 years before Nahum. 
And, and so if you remember the story of Jonah, and I won't give away too much, but the people repent there. Uh, they turn back to God, and that is a good thing. And, and so, but it doesn't take, it's less than 100 years later that they have forgotten God again. They've turned back to their old ways. Um, they are not following him. Uh, in fact, they're allowing this evil empire uh, to exist. And, and God had spared them. He had showed them mercy and they quickly turn their back on him again. And so he's angry. I have a, a book, an older book on the Minor Prophets called What Ticks God Off, which is a great title. And the fact that they, you guys even, you guys say the word ticks anymore? Is that, that just ticks. You guys, oh, it's still hanging around? Okay, that's good. That was, that was a big word when I was a kid, you know. I couldn't use real swear words, so you know, ticks, that ticks me off is what we would say. Um, but in this book, he says this about sin. He says, when we intentionally sin again, we are engaged in an act of outright defiance and rebellion against God. Our repeated sin is no trivial matter. It doesn't matter whether the conduct involves sexual sin, substance abuse, anger, materialism, idolatry, selfishness, gossip, spiritual arrogance, and you can just go on and on. Every volitional act on our part that knowingly takes us back into sin is an egregious affront to God. And do we believe that? Do we think about that? I mean, all of us, we all, look, we all struggle with sin, okay? There's nobody in this room that is perfect. There's no one that goes throughout the day without at some point probably doing something that is a sin or an affront to God. But how seriously do we take that sin in our lives? You see, repentance is to turn from our sin and to walk in the other direction. True remorse and sorrow over sin implies that we recognize that our sin is wrong. And that we have a desire not to do it again. Okay, sometimes I think we, with our sin, we're just like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. We try, to, we try to make it sound like, well, it could be worse, you know. And, and so we just say, we try to justify it. We try to think it's not a big deal. Um, but true remorse and repentance is the desire to not do it again. And it includes doing everything we can to keep ourselves from it. <clears throat> That's why at CCF we talk a lot about accountability, we talk a lot about discipleship. We talk a lot about being in small groups. We talk about, you know, we see guys being in groups together to helping each other out to overcome sin and struggles. Um, we, we talk a lot about that because we want to take the sin in our life seriously. We all struggle with sin. We all have those things that are hard for us to overcome. And I, I sometimes wonder if maybe it's harder for us to overcome those sins that we struggle with on a daily basis because we don't really believe that God gets angry at our sin, that it is an affront to him. Maybe it's good for us to read the prophets and be reminded that God hates sin, that God gets angry when we turn from him, that God is jealous, that God is holy and demands holiness. In verse 2, Nahum reminds us that the Lord is angry but he follows it up in verse 3 with, the Lord is slow to anger. It's like Nahum's like going to say, bad news, good news, don't, don't, don't lose hope. I am, I am Nahum. I am man who brings hope and comfort. And so he says, Lord is angry, but the Lord is slow to anger. And that is good news. Uh, it reminds me of what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it feels good to stop right there, right? Mm, the Lord is patient. 
The Lord wants us all to reach repentance. But the very next verse says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You know, he's talking about when God will come again. And, And so, yes, the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is patient. But the day of the Lord will come. And Nahum doesn't end his sentence with the Lord is slow to anger, period. He says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God may be patient with us. He may be slow to anger, but he has the ability to act and to bring justice. And when he does, Nahum reminds us in verse 6, he says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before? That word indignation literally means foaming at the mouth. (laughs) That's not a picture we want of God, right? (laughs) Who can endure the heat of his anger, Nahum says. The thing is, we want an angry God. We want a God foaming at the mouth in the face of injustice, right? In the face of Assyrian evil empires who are wicked and doing wicked things. In the face of injustice, we want a God who's angry. We want a God who will bring justice, who will destroy, who will bring nations like Assyria to their knees. But when it comes to our own unfaithfulness or sin in our own lives, we're more like, I'll take the slow to anger God for 500, Alex. That's more of our preference. Um, But we have to recognize uh, who the Lord is. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is angry. But thankfully, the Lord's jealousy and angry is not the end of Nahum's message. Nahum in verse 7 lives, this, lives up to his name, gives us a word of comfort. When he says this, it says, The Lord is good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge, who trust in him. And I think it's important that we understand and we look at God's jealousy, we look at God's wrath, we look at God's anger, his justice. It all stems foundationally from his goodness. These are all parts of his character because of his desire to make things right between us and him is for his desire to bring goodness into our world. Psalm 119, the psalmist says this about God. He says, you are good and do good. Good is the consistent description of the nature and actions of God throughout the Bible. It's the goodness of God that brings us salvation. Let me quote Tozer again. He says this. He says, With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Surely we are the most favored of all creatures. You get that? With the goodness of God to to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Do we believe that? When we think about God, is that what we think or understand about him? Do we really believe God wants what is best for us? Do we trust in his wisdom and power to guide us in our lives, to direct us? Or do we think we know what is best? Do we depend on our own wisdom on our own abilities and our own strength? Uh, Brennan Manning, who wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, said this about the goodness of God. He said, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. 
The psalmist in Psalm 86 says, For you, Lord, are good. You are good. You're ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. The message of the prophet Nahum was a message of salvation to the people of Israel. Yes, God was going to deal with the evil Assyrian Empire, but he was also calling his people back to him. And he tells them he knows those who take refuge in him. Let me close by rereading that Nahum uh, 1.15. I love it because it seems to anticipate uh, the good news of Christ. <clears throat> it says this, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who, bring, who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again will the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is a call to God's people to worship and recommit themselves to God. He says, keep your, vow, he says, keep your feasts, fulfill your vows. Um, it is God calling us to remember who it is that we should worship. It echoes Isaiah 52, 7, which basically says the same thing. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It recognizes who God is. The image of beautiful feet who bring good news pops up in the New Testament also. Paul mentions it in Romans and in Ephesians. Uh, but it reminds me of the imagery that Jesus gives us when he told the parable of the lost son. And most of us know this story, the son who took his inheritance early from his father and went out and wasted it and lost it all and lost everything. And it says when he finally came to his senses and he decides to return to his father and he's just going to beg him just to be a servant because he realizes I don't deserve to even be called a son for what I've done against you. And we see the father's response when he says this. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What beautiful feet who bring good news. A God who restores what is dead with new life. A God who redeems what is lost a God who rescues us from injustice, a God who brings us salvation. When you think about God, this is what you should think. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for your prophets uh, who remind us who you are. Uh, God, we thank you for your love for us. Uh, help us not forget your goodness, that you have rescued us, that you desire to save us. Lord, help us not to allow the, the injustice and the scary things of life to crowd you out. Help us to keep you at the center Lord, to keep our eyes fixed upon you, to trust you, to rest in you. Yeah, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.